Welcome to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Data Science Zoominar podcast. Our Zoominars feature interactive conversations with data science experts working across a wide spectrum of applications in industry, government, and academia. The conversations are moderated by faculty from the Department of Data Science at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode, Rafael Irizarry talks with Emma Ben from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai on increasing diversity in data science. Today, we're lucky to have Emma Ben as a guest. So Emma is an associate professor in the Center for Biostatistics and Department of Population Health Sciences and Policy at the Icon School of Medicine at Sinai in New York. And she has contributed uh, it, to many applications her, using her statistical expertise, including areas like epilepsy, traumatic brain injury, COPD, the list is long. Um, she has also, currently she's particularly interested in applying her statistical expertise to health disparities research, a very important topic uh, right now during the pandemic. Uh, but today, the topic today that we wanted to, to have a discussion on is diversity in data sciences. So um, couldn't think of anybody better to talk about this topic than Emma. She's been committed to increasing diversity in the field of biostatistics for several years. And if you go to her bio, you'll see all the grants and, and courses that she's, she has um, been awarded and, and created to, to help in this regard. So today we thought we could uh, have a conversation with her and learn about things we can do better uh, and, and also to inform people about why this is important and what it is and all that. So thanks, Emma, again for, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So I'll go straight right into the questions. So in so we hear a lot about organizations that promote diversity in, in different fields, in particular in STEM. And one question I want to discuss with you and so that our audience can hear about our definition is what do we mean by diversity? Well, I mean, diversity ends up uh, in terms of what one an organization means mm -hmm. by diversity really depends on the organization. Uh, for example, there are many folk who are focused on particular angles of diversity. So a lot of times you'll hear um, organizations interested in increasing the number of women, for example, in STEM. There are others who look at diversity just as in terms of increasing uh, representation of racial ethnic minorities. I personally think that diversity has to be broad. Basically, we have to think about who is not at the table. And that is across various genders. That's across race, ethnicity, right? That's, it, it, it's, it's quite wide. And I think we have to think of an intersectional approach to diversity because even within uh, what would be considered a diverse group, there are those who are more marginalized than others. So for example, I fit into, I guess, three categories. I'm uh, African-American, I'm a woman, and I fit into the LGBTQ category, right? And I would say that when I'm having conversations about diversity, when it comes to LGBTQ folk, I am constantly trying to remind individuals that there are LGBTQ folk of color who often are more vulnerable um, or more marginalized um, than when we think of LGBTQ as a whole. So it really depends on the organization as to what they mean. But I try to uh, make sure that I focus on um, a broad view of diversity. I think that we need to in this time. Yes, okay, and you, you spoke to this a little bit, but I want you to, to get a chance to say more about why you think it's important, why diversity as you've defined it is, is important in, in statistics and more broadly in, in, in data science. So just so you know, our audience often includes people that are software engineers, computer, computational biologists, although I think we're mostly statisticians like you and I. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Look, it, diversity isn't important just because we want to have more people who don't 
look like us at the table, right? Like that, I think that's where people get caught and they kind of just think, oh, we have like diverse people, so we're good. No, diversity leads to innovation, right? If we have more people who have different backgrounds, different experiences, they may approach a problem differently. They may identify a problem that others may not have even seen before. And they will lead, having diverse minds at a table uh, will also lead to novel solutions to our problems. And I, I give an example. So I'm a biostatistician. And um, however, my wife is Jamaican. Um, I live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Um, and so I am surrounded uh, by Caribbean, African communities, African-American communities, etc. And um, one thing that is kind of increasing, I mean, it's a global phenomenon, but it's increasing quite a bit, um, is skin bleaching. And the idea of inhibiting uh, melanogenesis, right? And so this is something that happens all over. This is not specific to Black folk. It's virtually something that happens to pop, uh, that is being practiced among populations of color throughout the world. Um, the biggest markets are Asian markets uh, and African markets. However, um, I am very interested in the health, um, the health outcomes of those who bleach their skin. Many of the products that they use include uh, uh, basically uh, hydroquinone and metals and corticosteroids. And so long-term use of these things could have uh, negative outcomes and also be deleterious for those who are bleaching while they are pregnant. So when I brought, I, I see this in my community, but when I went to go speak to a dermatologist about this, um, this was not a person of color. And I said, I'm very interested in this problem of skin bleaching. And she didn't know what I was talking about. She's like, are you talking about individuals who have vitiligo and they're just trying to tone their skin? And I'm like, no, they're, if you go into one of the beauty supply stores in my neighborhood, you will see a whole host of skin bleaching products. She had no idea what I was talking about. And then eventually connected me to someone who was a head of the Skin of Color Center uh, at Mount Sinai. And so what I say here, this is an example of the fact that this is a problem that would go under the radar if individuals of color who are from these communities did not bring this problem to the table. So yes, I'm a biostatistician, but I'm also an observer of the world around me. And so um, it's really, really important because we begin to identify problems that one wouldn't think about and also think about, like I said, solutions that one wouldn't think about. Yeah, good. So I, I will add to that that I, I view it also as a uh, opportunity cost that there are people who might be great at biostatistics that either don't know what it is or never have a chance to prepare to be able to enter a program. And uh, that is I mean, that's a very practical uh, uh, point of view, but I think it's, it's, there's many examples of that, like societies where groups of people are not permitted to enter certain jobs tend to be, this is very practical now, and I'm not even, I'm not talking about uh, important topics like, like if, it's, if it's fair or not, but just, you just see it that they don't, those countries don't do as well. I mean, if you keep, if you keep the best, if your best engineer happens to be of the wrong group, and doesn't get to be an engineer, that's not good for, for, for your society. Exactly. Uh, and, and I think that we, we, though here it's not, it's a little bit more subtle because it's not like there's laws against certain groups participating in academia, but there are, there, for whatever reasons, there are less um, of certain groups in our, in our field. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine we're going to talk about that more in this conversation. Yeah, so, so that's um, my next, my next question is that, is that if you have numbers, uh, so for statistics, I imagine, or biostatistics or whatever else you, you know, uh, I mean, you're, you're probably following this 
just use data more closely than me. I, I remember la the last few times I've seen the numbers as a trend. It doesn't. It it didn't look uh, too uh, too too great. But but maybe you you have more more recent uh, data than I than I, than what I've seen. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like let's think about this. So let's think about more broadly too, and then I'll get into statistics. So, um, a, I don't know, a couple years ago or so. Um, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, uh, director of the NIH, and uh, Dr. Hannah Valentine, who is the director of the Office of Scientific Workforce Diversity at the NIH, uh, published a piece um, around uh, the need for diversifying the biomedical research workforce. And they basically said that if we see the, the numbers of minorities in our population increasing dramatically. And yet we are not seeing those same increases in our biomedical research workforce. And I, and I think it's clear. I mean, so if we look at population estimates, I just looked today, uh, what's going on in the US. And this is based on the census uh, population estimates uh, from July 1st, 2019. Um, basically, Blacks or African Americans make up about 13% of the population. Hispanic um, or Latinxes make up about 18.5% of the population. Non-Hispanic whites are about 60%. Um, American Indian and Alaskan Natives, about 6%, and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, about 0.2%, and Asians, about 6%. So now, so, so I want you to have those numbers in your head. And now I'll show you some information that has been published by the ASA. Um, and this is kind of the trajectory of diversity uh, in statistics. Um, so on the y-axis, uh, you will see you will see the percentage of degrees earned by non-resident aliens, um, as is defined, even though I don't really like that term. Um, and generally, what we can identify here is that there's decreasing proportions of US citizens or permanent residents getting BA and MS degrees. Mm -hmm. And it's relatively stable for PhDs around 40% being US citizens or permanent residents for statistics and about 50% for biostatistics. I'm sorry, I don't know what the dashed and solid lines are. I'm trying to okay, see. Okay, so, so oh, the no. dash is biostatistics and the solid is statistics. Got it. Okay. Um, but now let's, sorry, now let's look at degrees earned by uh, race ethnicity for 2011 to 2017. Among US citizens are permanent residents, and that's because we don't have the, they don't provide us the statistics for those who are not US citizens or permanent residents. Uh, the majority of those getting degrees in uh, biostatistics or statistics are white um, or Asian, okay? Very little to no representation of American Indian or Alaskan Native or Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders. And Blacks or African Americans and Hispanic uh, Latinxes each represent about 5% max. So if, if one wanted to think about what's going on for race ethnicity, it, it, it's, it, we're not, we're really not doing better. And if one wants to say, well, um, maybe, you know, maybe it's changing over time. It really isn't. It pretty much fluctuates, um, but it really is. Actually, I gotta not, say that uh, this is something I hadn't know. No, I didn't know because I I only looked at PhDs. I I'm, I, I should have said that. Yeah, no. We, the BA so I didn't look MS, at all. BA and MS are are increasing. VA in particular, that's. BAs generally are increasing, but if you look at uh, Blacks or African Americans getting BA in stats, oh, that's a parenthesis. No, that's in parentheses. Oh. That's the percentage, right? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so what I'm saying is it kind of fluctuates, 
but it's it's challenging and i also have this for hispanic uh, latinxes so uh, what i'm trying to say is that there is more work that needs to be done um we we can't continue to see growing populations of those who are for example racial ethnic minorities and and then not see them represented in our field and this is those getting degrees we could go even further and say well how many are represented among leadership positions in data science or statistics right and 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 the numbers get small it shouldn't be that rafael you and I know the majority of Black and, and, and Hispanic or Latinx uh, statisticians. There should be many that I don't know, right? And, and so I think there's, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Yeah, I think I know both Puerto Ricans. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I, there's a question for the audience. I apologize that I didn't see them earlier, that, that I, I, I might as well ask them now. And it's, it relates to our first question, and the first one is from Meredith Warshaw that's asked if you include disabilities in diversity work. And yeah. And points out that it's an open, overlooked group. And the second, well, I'll ask you the second, give you a chance, and then I'll ask you the second mm -hmm. question. Uh, that's the first question. I can ask, you want me to ask both? So the second question is, what about including folks who are not neurotypical? I, ne I never hear that mentioned. I guess those, those two questions are somewhat related. Um, but they, they're basically groups that are probably underrepresented, but not ethnic minorities in any way. Right. So, um, no, that those are very, very good questions. Um, I definitely think that those groups are definitely um, go under the radar. Um, most, so, so for... So I've created um, a, a while ago, uh, several years ago, uh, more than 10 years ago, um, started a um, biostatistics uh, diversity summer program for um, individuals who were from underrepresented uh, groups, um, have disabilities or economically disadvantaged. Um, and that, um, was really, um, and that's at Columbia, that's a summer program for undergraduates. And that really is, um, the NIH generally does define diversity as including individuals uh, with disabilities. Um, I think that people leave that out. And I think that is, I mean, individuals are not kind of um, isolated from society. And I think that those are groups that are left out in our society um, and not uh, thought about as much. But I do believe that diversity initiatives should include um, individuals who have disabilities. I think that sometimes some disabilities are not they're not seen, right? And so one many times does not know whether or not someone has a disability. Um, whereas others, uh, other disabilities, of course, one has to think about how they best accommodate individuals. And so I think that if, if people are serious about diversity, they have to uh, really make sure that they are doing everything they can to accommodate um, those who are underrepresented. And I do believe that those with disabilities are uh, not uh, are underrepresented in our they are underrepresented in our field. Yep. Yeah. Um, there, all right. Let's see. There's another question. I might ask this one a little later. So that's just, so I want to go back to these trends. So you, you, I, th these are very similar to what I had seen. Th these numbers you put up. Uh, once I realized you had them, the parentheses is what I should have been looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, we the government institutions, NIH in particular, have been investing a lot of, of, of um, resources in, in trying to, to increase those numbers, universities as well. And we don't, I don't know, we don't see, this is a, this is a counterfactual, but you know, we don't see of, of what would have happened had they not invested, but we don't, we don't see a correlation with the funding and the numbers. So 
I don't, do you, do you see this? I mean, what do you think about this? Do you, do you think that this, these programs that are being funded are not working or it would have been worse had they not funded it? What, what, what is your take on, 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 the, on the fact that we're, we are increasing spending, but the numbers aren't, aren't moving? Well, because I think that there, the, so I have been a, a former co-chair of the ENAR Fostering Diversity and Biostatistics Workshop. I work a lot with the Joint Statistical Meetings Diversity Mentoring Program. I work with the Math Alliance, right? There's, there's a lot of uh, organizations that are out there, but generally, sometimes it's hard to sustain these things. And, and to actually make an impact, it has to be, uh, it has to be a multi-pronged initiative. So a lot of people kind of think, well, the point is, let's just try to get diverse folk here at the table. But then they don't think about how do you retain diverse folk? How do you ensure that they move forward in the field? I do believe that it is necessary to have funding, but the funding has to be used in a way that really, really gets at the root cause of the problems. So, you know, um, there are, I give an example. So here I was, um, I'm from like Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. I'm from right outside of Philadelphia. Um, and it's a suburb and, um, I had access to good public education. Um, but when it came to applying to graduate school, like I really didn't know what graduate school was. My parents hadn't gone to grad school, right? Like I really just didn't know what it was. And so even when I went into my doctoral program in biostatistics and people were talking about qualifying exams, I had no idea what they were. I had no idea how to study for them. And so what happened? I failed my qualifiers the first time around, right? I had to fail my qualifiers to really learn what a qualifier really is. And so what I think here is that there are a whole host of things that one needs to be successful. We need mentorship. So it's not enough to just teach folks statistics or, or data science. One has to mentor individuals, help them get exposed to more opportunities, Be, have culturally competent mentorship, understand if someone has financial challenges. Uh, one has to go outside of the box and not make assumptions about who, uh, who's the best. Um, and we can't always, uh, for those of us who are mentors, always be wanting to take the, the student that on paper looks the best. So I think that the funding is needed. I think that the funding is there. I just think that we have to use it in a way that will um, have a bigger impact. And I think we have to work hard to find um, those individuals who would not have gotten here if that funding were not provided. Yeah. We can't just keep selecting individuals who they would have been going this path anyway because then we're not really making a dent yeah right I, I i do see that too and i i see that something that frustrates me a little bit is, is maybe i'm being too harsh but a lot of the a lot of the people that are putting pressure on maybe it's you know whatever it is a department a, a whatever group to increase diversity they are they seem to be thinking really short term, like just, you know, just get me the number so I can present them. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, and that's it. And like, they'll move along to it. They did well, they move along to a new job or a new higher up job. And now, and now you, you know, you, 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 you didn't necessarily fix anything. Maybe these students struggled because there were no resources mm -hmm. in place to help them. They're just, you let them in and then they fail because they didn't, there was no follow up. Uh, support or resources and that's that seems like worse no that seems like kind of a little cruel in some in some it situation. is cruel so yeah i mean i agree with you and i, I think the fun is there is just the funding's there and i don't necessarily think we need more it's just using it better and thinking more long term is really uh really important 
uh, yeah, so I agree. So I, we have a bunch of questions. <laughs> I, the, the most questions we've gotten in a while. So I'll try to get to all audience. If you're listening, don't, don't feel bad if I don't get to yours. Um, so I'll ask you some of the ones that are relevant. So one person is, I'm going to summarize your question on Omnibus Attendee, uh, asking about uh, SEEs. And they're basically saying that a lot of people who don't classify in these, in these ethnic groups that we've already mentioned are, are also disadvantaged. And um, is there any, is there data on first generation graduates as well? Like so, so I know that they do get included in some of these programs. Uh, first generation students, for those that don't know, are, stu are students whose parents didn't go to college. And uh, I don't know if you have any insights into that. I mean, none of the none of the figures you showed had that, and I know that it's it's more of a recent uh, 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 endeavor to to try to also uh, include first generation students as as in, in, under the underrepresented group, which is you know I think it's fair. I mean, there's very few there's very few of them in academia. I don't yeah, know I mean. Sense. So, so the ASA has not, uh, to my knowledge, um, published that information. Maybe the NCS uh, might um, have information there. However, I do know quite a few individuals who are um, working really, really hard on trying to um, increase opportunities for first-generation college students. I can think of like Randy Garcia, um, over at Smith College, who's doing a lot of work around this. Um, uh, look, I don't care what race you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what, whatever you are. If you are a first generation college student, you are going to have barriers. Um, and it's, and, and there's a lot, there's a huge learning curve. Um, and it is something that we need to address. We need, as, as faculty, we need to be addressing this in our programs. We need to be putting the resources in place and stop assuming that everybody knows how this educational process goes. Um, so, so they're definitely, I think, lower SES, like, and, and that's why I keep pointing out, you know, uh, here I am, yes, someone would say, well, you're a racial ethnic minority. And I would say, well, yeah, but I also grew up in a suburb. And even though my parents didn't have much, I got access to what the wealthier people got just by virtue of being in that community, right? So, so maybe the struggles that I would typically have based on my parents' SES I didn't have because of my exposure to, to individuals from wealthier backgrounds. Um, however, I have mentees who are coming from low SES backgrounds who have, who are also first generation college students, first generation graduate students. And I acknowledge that the challenges that they face are very, very different than the challenges that I face. And so I have to do my homework to make sure that I am finding everything I can to better support those students. The problem is, Raphael, you probably do this with your mentees. I do this with my mentees, but it has to be, there has to be an infrastructure that is built so that it's not just the faculty who care about helping first generation college students uh, are doing their work, but there has to be an infrastructure so it's already set up. It's not relying on what the individual faculty does. Yeah, um, definitely. I hear a lot of stories about people coming in and not even, like you, like you were mentioning, not knowing where to go and getting, not knowing where, where to get advice even. And it's, and that is an infrastructure problem, isn't it? Like, well, you just, just get to some campus and there you are, what now? <laughs> go and, to class yeah. and what else? Like, there's a bunch of other things you have to know to do and, and you just don't know yeah. And I mean, this is, this is one more thing I just want to say about students from low SES backgrounds. Like, we have to stop assuming that students should be doing research for free, right? Like, in college, I could not go and work in my professor's lab for free. I had to go find a job, 
right? Like in the summers. Um, I now like fight like tooth and nail to make sure that I try to have funding for my mentees. At this stage in my career, I can do that. But before I could not do that. We have to stop assuming students can work for free because then what happens is we end up better positioning the wealthiest students and the students who have are from lower SES backgrounds are getting are missing out on research opportunities because they have to find more practical ways to pay their bills. It's, I'm sorry, I feel very <laughs> passionate about this, but we have to do better. Mm -hmm. So Abraham is asking, commenting too about follow up to what something I said about the lack of, of, of a backup to some of the initiatives that, that are started. And, and she's pointing out that there's also a problem with the evaluation of these programs, that there's no follow up data collection. It's often, and that's true. There's no, she asked, what's, where's the funding for that? That's that. And that is a, a good point and a good question that is some of those programs that aren't delivering maybe should get, you know, defunded. That's I, I would I would definitely be um, a supporter of an approach like that. You you fund the ones that that do well and and defund the ones that don't. Um, that that's one way to to improve what we're doing. I don't know if you agree, but yeah, no. I mean, look, we can't be in data science and statistics and and everything and come up with these programs and not evaluate the effectiveness of them. I know. Um, uh, Scarlett Bellamy, um, Lonnie Tab, and, and others and myself just, um, well, it's in revisions right now, but hopefully it will be published soon, but uh, just published uh, some evaluation of the ENAR Fostering Diversity and Biostatistics workshop we've done. Um, the, any program that I'm working with, like, you got to have data. That's, I mean, we do everything else based on evidence. Um, and we also need to disseminate. We need to disseminate what works well um, so that people aren't continuing to reinvent the wheel. We should be building off of what works well. And to disseminate what works well, we also need to be disseminating um, uh, the, the findings um, from these programs. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and that's something how we stop, we stop being statisticians when it comes to to evaluating our own initiatives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because look, we all like just think, oh, we're just doing a good job. Like yeah. it's great, <laughs> like we're, this is just a beautiful program or whatever. And, and, and yeah, there are some great things. For example, in some of the programs I've done, I think that we've done really, really well at establishing a really wonderful network of diverse statisticians across all levels. But, right, we also need to evaluate in terms of, are they identifying mentors? Are they benefiting from these programs, right? So, yes, I think April asked a, a great question. Um, and it's not enough, that, for example, if you have an NSF or an NIH-funded program, it's not enough to submit your findings as part of your progress report. We need to disseminate these things to the public. Um, and we need to build from what works. And like you said, cut, cut out what doesn't work, you know? So do you, very specifically, I'm very interested in this since we're talking about it. What, what um, in your experience, what has worked and what hasn't? So I believe that um, structured research experiences are very, 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 very important. Um, however, I also believe that there's a whole host of other things. So if you're working with, uh, let's say, undergraduates, right, and you want them to think about graduate school, it is not enough to teach them statistics and data science. You better have GRE prep for them. You better be working on uh, helping them build their personal statements. Uh, you need to be exposing them to what are the careers that are out there so that they, it, the, the wide array, so that they can say, oh, wow, that application of data science, that seems interesting to me. And we also need to be honest. We need to be honest and explain that this is not an easy road. Yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely. not an easy road, and we need to stop enabling uh, um, those who we want to to help. Um, but I also think, like I said, like 
long-term mentorship, long-term mentorship that is dealing with both the, the, the educational and professional things, but also the personal things. Um, th those are important things. So I just think there are like quite a few areas that we need to be working on. And I understand not every program can address all of those things, but where there is a gap, one needs to figure out if, if I can't address this, okay, I need to connect them to Raphael's program so that they can address this. So you're saying this is, you, you talked about this, this GRE prep and, and the essays and, and all this. This is, a, this is something that you've implemented in your program? So yeah, in the summer program that I started at Columbia, uh, they do, so I am now on the external advisory board, but more than 10 years ago, while I was a doctoral student, I co-founded uh, the Best Diversity Program. That's what it's called. I'm not saying it's yeah. the best. Capital B, capital E. Right, right, right. Um, um, but anyway, um, in that program, we taught introductory statistics. Um, uh, at the time we started with SAS, now I think it's more R programming. Um, GRE prep, we had them talking to admissions reps. Like we had them also having kind of, um, here, it's here in New York City, so we also exposed them to um, various things throughout the city such that they could build like a network. We also housed them here in the city, like the, all of these, all of these different things to also make sure that we, they build a cohort together so that as they go on their journey, when they leave, <laughs> they will be together encouraging each other on. Um, and many of those students, those who were um, uh, part of the program, like many were writing letters of recommendation for them to go to graduate school. So we tried to really do our best, expose them to research seminars um, so that they could know what's out there. Um, so these are really, really important. Much of the work um, I do now is also, you know, I have a new center for uh, scientific diversity that is uh, now trying to align my service with my research. Um, and it's a research center aimed at increasing research success and equitable advancement for um, underrepresented faculty in academic medicine, but also uh, strengthening the pipeline uh, to get uh, underrepresented students into the biomedical research workforce. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm serious about this stuff um, and just now really have the opportunity to say, okay, here are the programs I've started or whatever, but now like, let's, let's get the evidence. Let's put out best practices. Let's awesome. do yeah. this like we should. And let's be honest, if my, if a program here doesn't work, you got to say it. So, um, <laughs> this is honesty thing really, really, uh, I really agree with that. I, um, and I, I'm going to ask a, a follow-up question to the pipeline, but before that, I just want to comment on the, on the, this fact, because it does, it does bother me when, when we're not honest. And I've seen things like, I know this is well-meaning, but people are getting disappointed because some, somebody they were recruiting didn't come to our program. But then I find out they went to Washington. It's like, when, why are we disappointed? It's great. They're going to a great biostat program. You know, we are, the, the, the goal was achieved. <laughs> Uh, right. It's like this. It's like why do we care what happens here or there? It's like it's a bigger problem than 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 us looking good or our brochure looking good or whatever you want to say. Um, so that's that's something that, that's one one point I wanted to make. And the other one is that I, I also think that it is you you hit it right the, the nail right on the head. It's like you, some people aren't, and it's related to what I'm to this other comment that someone doesn't look like they're gonna like it then we shouldn't encourage them to go into it. That just seems insane. Like maybe, they, you know, they, there's so many things you can do with a quantitative mind or even, or, or a statistical mind that is in academia. And if, if, the, if the student really shows an interest on whatever else, I mean, that shouldn't be considered a, a failure. So I, I really agree with that, that, that sentiment that it's important that we only encourage people that we think are going to like it. Because, you know, to be good at, to, to, to succeed in academia, you have to like it. You have to like it because it's, it's too much work. It's too much pressure to, to do unless you're actually enjoying what you're doing. So, uh, so here's the, um, the, the question about pipelines. Um, 
comes up and I, I sometimes I've seen some sometimes it gets controversial like people saying there is no pipeline problem it's just like it's just universities being prejudiced or whatever but I don't know if I agree with that because I mean you show you show the numbers I see the numbers and the applications and there is less there are less applications um, and there's one of the questions from the audience which I think Tian Zhang, I think I know who she is if it's, if it's her she um, she asks about this she's wondering if if there's if, if you know of any successful models of say academia industry partnership for improving pipeline diversity and one of the things I'll add to that question that I've thought about, this is no data, just thoughts, uh, that I know, I see that, that there, I can imagine someone that finishes a BA in math or computer science, whatever that field that is, you, you, would be useful to study statistics. They, they have an option of going into a PhD program, which to them might sound completely new and, and scary. They don't even know what it is. So why should I go do it? Although it, it's often free to do it free, you know, money, money wise free time. Cause it does take time obviously. Uh, and to I can't test it out in any way. They're not going to be able to test it out. Now a master's degree, which takes a year or two is a way to test it out, but it, but it costs 50,000 a year. And I don't see any attempts from, from the, the agencies. Although I have talked, I have, pitch this idea to them and they are definitely open to it. It's just not, it's always harder than it seems that it, it would be a way to let people test things out, like pay for a master's program, let, let them do a master's first. Maybe they like it. And if they do, then they can go to a PhD, but if they don't, they have a master's, they can get a high paying job. So it's like, oh, it's a win-win, um, except if you have to pay, that's another story. I mean, that's a lot of money to, to just, to just have, you know, lying around and paying. So I don't know. That's, that's my thought on that question i don't know if you have any further ideas well so i think is if about academia industry. industry partnerships to, to maybe improve this this connection yes yeah, so i think i i agree that like hey an academia industry partnership where industry is sponsoring students to get a master's degree that that would be wonderful um but i also think um those partnerships and which i do believe some do exist um, where you are providing students with where industry is providing students with the opportunity to apply what they're learning in the classroom to uh, real world <laughs> uh, research um, that is also very 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 important because i think um getting i, I just i come I constantly keep saying, I know I'm probably going to sound like a broken record, but that exposure matters, right? Like exposure matters. And maybe that industry partnership might yield the, the student saying that, you know what, this isn't for me, or I really like statistics or data science, but I think I want to go into academia or I want to go into government. Um, I actually, as an undergraduate, um, participated in a program called Inroads, which I was a chemistry major, but um, Inroads provided me with the opportunity to intern for a Johnson and Johnson pharmaceutical company. And so, when I was interning for like a couple summers, when I came out, I had a full-time job as a quality control chemist. Did that for a year realized that, mm, I don't know if this is for me, and then went back to school. But I can see that being something for individuals to have, like getting exposure in industry. And then if they choose to stay there uh, or they like the field industry, yes, um, covering their, their master's program, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And I think many are interested. I mean, they're constantly looking for st statisticians and data scientists. So yeah. I think that we just need to build these partnerships. We need to do the work. Yeah, I, I got to say, that's another thing that I, I think we could do better. Uh, and the ASA is trying hard. And I got to say that I'm, I'm proud of, of the ASA, how, they're, how, how well they're doing at this, though it's hard. And it's getting the word out that, uh, yeah. that what this is. 
I, I don't, I hadn't, I didn't, the first time I heard of the word biostatistics, I think was when I got into grad school. I went to staff Same. department. Same. <laughs> um, so, I never heard of it. Go yeah, grad school. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it's a, I think a fun PhD to do. And also you definitely get job prospects if you finish. Same for a master's. So let me, uh, we're, we ran out of time already, but there's so many questions. I want to get to at least one more. So this one's coming from Bethany, who I think you know, had got here. Well, while you are talking about some of these retention strategies for students and faculty, are there any particular programs, activities that have jumped out to you as excelling in this domain and linked to funding? If you had a good amount of money to address this within your department, how would you do it? Okay, so I, I'm just reading the question because oh, you can see it question. too. Okay. Yeah, I can see it. So I'm just um, uh, okay. So so I think that there are quite a few um, ways that people are are doing this. I think some individuals are using kind of NIH funding, doing well. Like the program I started is um, NHLBI funded. Um, the NIGMS. Um, has also been doing quite a bit in trying to think, uh, offer funding for individuals to help try to um, diversify the biomedical research workforce. The NSF is doing well at providing fundings for REUs um, and things like that. But I do think there needs to be institutional investments. Like the funding that one gets um, from these federal agencies is not enough there has to be institutional investment. So if, if your institution really cares or your department really cares, they have to also make the investment. The, the program I started, the Best Diversity Program, the first summer, I mean, we brought this to the chair at the time and we were like, we wanna start something, this is a problem. I felt it was a problem that I was the only person of color among the students and the faculty. So the department said, fine, here's $30,000 to start something. It wasn't a lot, but at the time it seemed like a lot. And that was enough for us to build the infrastructure to then get funding from the NHLBI after that. So I think that you need to have institutional investment. Otherwise it's really hard to sustain these things because if the grant funding ends, how do you keep it going? So it has to be a part of the mission of the department and the institution. Yep. Right. All right. Well, I'm going to um, stop here. I'm going to let you give some parting words. One thing that came up in one of the questions that we're, I'm sorry, apologies mm -hmm. to all the people who asked. Uh, we had a lot of questions this time and couldn't get to all of them. Uh, but there was one common question that was posted there that I think maybe after this we can connect them to do something or maybe it already exists and it's to have a list of programs. Um, that are out there. I do get, I get, I get emails about this often. Like, what can I, how can I learn about biostatistics? What programs are out there? And, and I, I also just, I always just plug our own, but there's, but I, if I had a longer list, I would, I would actually send, send them um, a longer list. So that, that's a good idea. I mean, maybe it probably already exists somewhere. So we can just go and find it. And I guess we could share it. We'll share it on our, on our tweet, Twitter account. And, and however else it occurs to me to, to do that. Um, I don't know if you want to have some parting words to our to our audience members before we, we stop. Um, well, I just want to say about the list. I mean, there are a lot of programs like there's mm -hmm. the ASA Stat Fest, there's ASA, uh, uh, sorry, the Joint Statistical Meetings Diversity Mentoring uh, Program, there's the ENAR Fostering Diversity in Biostatistics, there's the Math Alliance, um, there, there are a lot of initiatives, yeah. um, and you're right. We need to get them all in one place. So someone could say, what, what can I do? How can I help? Um, parting words. Um, look, I just, I'm appreciative, um, of you inviting me to have this conversation. I don't think we have this conversation enough in our field. Um, I think more people are thinking about it. I think it's unfortunate that um, one has to wait until, for example, George Floyd is killed hmm. for people to start thinking about the challenges that um, 
underrepresented individuals may face in society, but also within academia or within our fields. Um, it's, you know, when we start thinking about, so, so I also think it's, we should be thinking about how we get more people to the field, but I also think that this has to be a part of a conversation too that is around bias in algorithms um, and thinking about how do we, you know, potentially lock people up <laughs> based on data science, right? Like, I, so, so I think all of these conversations about how we increase diversity in our fields also has to be connected with what is going on in our society. And so if we are serious about this, I do believe we can make change. I am optimistic. Otherwise, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have put so many years into this. Um, but I do think that we can constantly get better. Um, and I also think there needs to be more collaboration across programs mm -hmm. so that we can begin to kind of enhance uh, these programs in a way that, Raphael, your program does X, Y, and Z, and you're encouraging all those who did your program to make sure they get to ASA Stat Fest next year or, or whatever, right? So, and I also think it's never too early to start thinking about this. Um, for the students who are listening, um, you can make an impact too. You actually have more power than some of the faculty uh, who are listening because you can demand that your departments and your institutions take this seriously. Um, and so I just think we all just need to put in the work and we need to keep disseminating what works well um, and keep innovating, <laughs> keep innovating um, and see this just as important as um, all of the other topics we uh, confront in our field. Yep. It, it shouldn't be that this is just a service thing. And I also think that we need to be, um, we need to be incentivizing individuals or rewarding individuals who are, who are doing the work, who are making an impact. We need to see that as just as important as getting that NIH grant or, you know, it's not just a service thing. It's, it's um, necessary for, for our field to thrive. Great. Well, with those words, we're going to end. Say goodbye to everybody. Thanks again for joining us. And I will be in touch. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.